The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm so glad you could join me uh, today for the conversation. I'm Diane Ray. Thanks for being present with me uh, this afternoon. Wherever you are, uh, floating out there on the internet, listening live, if you feel so moved to join us, that would be so great. Uh, I take live calls, <laughs> so give me a call, 816-251-3555 if you so desire. And also, the show will be available on all your favorite podcast platforms later. So I was on a plane trip recently uh, over the summer, and I was listening to a great podcast, and it was called Confronting O.J. Simpson with Kim Goldman, and Kim, the sister of murder victim Ron Goldman. And the series is amazing if you haven't heard this. You know, 25 years after this event that gripped the country, Kim is still dealing with her feelings of pain and loss. And as I was listening to the show on one of the episodes titled Love and Grief, Kim talks with my guest today, David Kessler, who's a a friend. I'm happy to call him a friend as well. So I was so uh, excited to hear him on the podcast. I immediately emailed him like, hey, I heard you on this podcast. (laughs) You know, it kind of had like a a geek moment, but he did such a great job and it's really an amazing conversation. And if you haven't heard this podcast series, you should definitely check it out. And David is one of the world's foremost experts on healing and loss. So Kim Goldman was definitely going to the right person. He's the author of several books, including on grief and grieving, which he co-wrote with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And in his new book that we're going to be talking about today, Finding, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, He extends the well-known five stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And David's book is filled with personal stories as well as his his own personal story of grief and loss. So I want to welcome David to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Diane, it's so great to be on with an old friend. I I always love connecting with you and working with you, so I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm so glad we could talk about this. And, and it was so fun to to hear you on that podcast. <laughs> I was like, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> He's on the podcast. Well, I'll tell you the idea that I was talking with Kim Goldman, who has obviously dealt with grief as long as I've dealt with grief. You know, you wonder going into that, what am I going to say for someone like her that's been through so much and is so grief literate. And, uh, I was grateful because so many times I have conversations with people about grief and you sort of go, oh, I wish someone else could hear this. It's really good. And and she was so brave that she put it out there for everyone. And it's just a remarkable podcast, the series. So like you, I invite other people to check it out because you think you know, but there's always more. There's always more. Right. 
Right. No, it, it's riveting. It, I've been suggesting it to everybody to check it out. And I think it, and it kind of, I wanted to mention that just because it, it really dovetails with what we're going to be talking about with your book and finding meaning and the conversations that you had with Kim on the podcast were just so, so real, you know, and, and she got really, you know, real and, and uh, revealed a lot of, of her feelings on everything and, and just how present it still is with her after 25 years and how she's still trying to find meaning in everything that happened in that, that whole event. And and you know, given you, what has happened to her, she yeah. is an articulate, smart, sweet, amazing person, you know, who's just taking the horrible things she and her family have been through and helping so many other people in the world and helping other victims. And she's just amazing. I'm, I'm grateful to her and in awe of her. And really how she was able to find meaning is that she works with people um, does she work with people in, in grief situations in, in her work? Well, I think, you know, and I, I'm just guessing I don't have like a, an amazing working knowledge of her work, but I can tell you this, if you're working with victims, you're working with grief. So in that, I would say she probably is. And right. uh, she's, she's a extremely sensitive, caring person. And uh, I, I'm, I loved do, doing that with her. So she is and, a great example of finding meaning after loss. Exactly. Like that's what I was trying to, trying to connect, you know, how even just right. her doing right. the podcast, um, not even only what she does for a living, but her doing that whole series and kind of, and having the courage to revisit everything that happened during the trial and right. all the people that she right. talked to and for her to try to find meaning to what happened with her brother it was pretty right. incredible. And, and it was, it's so great to hear you talk with her about it. And really that was the missing piece and, and why you wrote this book, right. To give people that opportunity to explore some of these ideas and the things that you go into in the book about finding meaning after right. a great loss. And, and let's talk about that concept that first of all, I want people to know, you know, obviously there's tremendous grief when we talk about someone like Kim, whose brother was viciously murdered all the way to our loved ones who may die at 80, 90 years old, our parents, and even, you know, all the losses we endure in our life, whether it's divorce and breakup, betrayal. You know, one of the things I tell people is people will go, oh, you're talking about physical death. My loved one hasn't died. I'm just this. I'm just that. My pet's this. And I tell people, no matter what you're going through, whether it's a breakup, it is the death of that relationship in that form. If it's a divorce, it is the death of that marriage. If it's a pet loss, it is the death of that relationship with your beloved pet. So, you know, in our mind, we sort of sometimes go, oh, our loss, our loss doesn't count because it's not as bad as. And I always tell people, all losses count. You know, your tears count. And no matter what you've been through, of course, we're going to experience the stages and not in that order. And they're not a map for grief and they don't have to be linear and all those things. But there's also more to grief than the pain. There's meaning to be found. And that's what I wanted to research. And it's so interesting what you you came up with and 
the stories that you share in the book. And the book is really relatable. I, I want people to know that uh, I'm really enjoying reading it because I, I love to hear the stories and, and the things that you share in the book and all the people that you talk to. And one of the things that you said that, that really struck me in the book, that grief should unite us, that it's a universal experience that should be witnessed. And other people, when you're in the, in the throes of grief or a loss, they, they don't want to witness that, right? Even though they may have the best intentions, that they say something that that might be wrong, or they're just, or they just shy away from it. But we really yeah, it's it's interesting witness, how we've right? become this society that wants to fix grief. You know, when when I hear you're hurting, I want to show you the silver lining and tell you, isn't it good your loved one died suddenly, or whatever it may be. And we have to understand that when someone's in grief, they're not broken. We don't need to fix them. We just need to be with them. Right. And some people are so uncomfortable with that. They just don't want to, like, they're afraid it's going to rub off or that. It's contagious. It's right. Right. right? <laughs> and, and that's so, that's so unfair, you know, to the person that's going through that, that we should, you know, definitely bear witness, you know, and, and, and not try to shy away from it. And that's why I love the work that you do is you're changing the conversation or you're trying to, I mean, I know you've been doing this work for a long time, but trying to change the the conversation about life and death in this country and, and grief and loss. And that's one of the things that you, that you talk about to bear witness. So that, I think, Absolutely. I think it's there's something about grief must be witnessed. You know, we weren't meant to be islands of grief. And I think we don't understand that as much as we talk about emotional intelligence, when someone we love has lost something dear, that is the moment for us to connect. That is the moment for us to emotionally be with them. And yet, just like you say, we don't have the words. We try to point out the silver lining. We want to see them when they get better. And it's not about better. They're changed. Right. So there's really, I, I always think that, I mean, after, you know, like my mother died, there was kind of before and after, and it kind of, I don't know if it really changes you and your DNA, but I've described it as feeling that way. Like you, you really do feel rearranged in, in some sense after going through something like that. Well, I think, you know, our parents are our anchors and uh, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, you and I having a conversation once about mothers and me going, I think I'm going to talk about mothers today on the radio. And you are like, mothers loom large. And I will never <laughs> forget those words. Mothers loom large. I mean, and how could they not? Whether we had, you know, a good relationship, an imperfect relationship, or even had an abusive mother. I mean, we often don't understand in grief. We grieve the person that died and even if they were a horrible mother or a horrible father, we still grieve them. And in addition to them, we grieve the idea of the ideal mother or father or brother or sister or wife. We deserve this lifetime that maybe didn't get. Right. It, right. It's, it's interesting. And the ways that you describe in the book that grief is expressed I thought was, was really interesting too. the practical griever, the private one, and there's really no right or wrong way. It's just how people express it differently, 
you know, and even in my own experience, how I expressed it, how my, my siblings did, you know, going through my mother's death and my father's death, um, you know, like my brother processed when my father died much, much differently. So yeah, it's, it's interesting the way it's expressed. And, the way and that's one of the keys book. to know that we all do it differently. Like you and your siblings did not have the same relationship with your mother. So why would your grief be exactly alike? So even in a family, we all grieve differently. And some are the practical grievers. They're the to-do list people. They're keeping things organized, you know, and some of the people are the ones that just are highly emoting and want to express their feelings. And there's just no right or wrong in this. It's just a lot of different ways we go through the grieving process. But I'll tell you, one of the keys is to not judge our experience of grief. Because the moment we begin to think we're doing it wrong, that sort of complicates our grief. Right. I mean, and how could you think that, oh, this is wrong? Or I guess if well, maybe if you feel we you're have not a expressing society enough, that's or... saying you're doing too much, you're doing too little. Why are you crying so much? Why aren't you crying enough? Get it together, move on. Right. Don't you think that a lot of that is media driven, like things that we see on TV or in the movies, like it, it should be this way? Well, the media wants to wrap things up. Obviously, you know, the media is about like, let's have a story. Let's have three tips. Let's have closure. You know, we've all witnessed someone after something horrific happens on the TV news, getting a mic shoved in their face and going, have you found closure? And the person's like, yes, I found closure. I want the story to end. You know, but then they see their counselor the next week and go, oh, my gosh, they're still dead. Right, right. That's so horrible. I mean, I always hate when they do that, you know, when they shove those microphones in people's faces and, you know, expect them to have a sound bite or something like that. It, it's terrible the way things are portrayed like that. And you, you've been in a lot of those big scenes, right? I mean, you go and, and help people when there's, I mean, you've been at big plane crashes and, you know, events where there's media and, and people there doing that. That's of crazy. Of course. And, and it's also a strange society now that someone will tell me they're having a hard time with their parent who died at 85 years old. And I'll go, well, of course it's hard. And they'll go, no, I'm having a hard time grieving. And, and I'll go, well, what, what's, what's, you know, just, just grieve, just feel your feelings. And they go, I know, but I'm so sad and I'm so upset. And I mean, you know, she lived 85 years old. It's not like she died in Sandy Hook. And I'm like, wait a minute, you still get to miss your mother, even though she wasn't murdered at three years old, you know, but we get into comparing griefs. And there's so much tragedy in the world, but it doesn't take away from your tragedy. It doesn't take away from your loss. You know, all losses deserve grief. Right. No, I agree. Absolutely. And and how you process it is going to be a, a, a personal thing. And there is that comparison or people that will say, oh, you should be over this at, at a certain time. And and there is no time. I mean, you, you describe very honestly, your own experience in, in, in losing your son. And I mean, that must have been just, and it still continues to be a, a horrible experience. I mean, well, it's people one of those saying, things, you know, you know, people ask me a lot, how long does grief last? Or how long will my friend be grieving? And I always say to them, well, how long is the person going to be dead? 
Because if they're going to be dead for a long time, you're going to grieve them for a long time. But it doesn't mean you won't grieve with more love than pain in time. And the truth is, you know, as much as I've studied grief and had it as a child, I certainly wasn't prepared for the, the death, not that anyone would be, of my younger son. And, you know, I had to really sit down and think about what am I going to do with this loss? And I had to do the things I've told everyone else to do. I I went to support groups. I went to a grief counselor. Uh, I took one day at a time. And it's interesting because I had written a few chapters about this concept of meaning. And I'd studied Viktor Frankl's work. And, you know, I wondered how meaning related to, to grief. And I had written these chapters, I don't know, two or three years before he died. And after he died, I was just going through my office one day, bumping around, just dealing with the pain. And I picked up these chapters that I had written on meaning. And I looked at them like, yeah, like that's going to help with the pain. And I started reading them. And it does meaning doesn't take away the pain, but it gives you a cushion. It gives you more. It helps you connect with the love. Right. And I, I loved in, when I was reading in the book how you talked about sharing stories. And you also mentioned this to Kim in, in the podcast. And there, there's a part of that series where some of her brother's friends share stories and, and how comforting that is rather than someone saying, you know, oh, I'm sorry for your loss. Like, you know, sharing experiences with that person. And that, that keeps them alive in a way, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I talked about the... Um... Uh, the movie Coco that, you know, the reality is we, 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 we are the living, breathing evidence that our loved one was here. We are the keeper of the memories, the keeper of the stories. And I think it's so important when people hear me talking about the sixth stage, the stage of meaning, I want people to know that it's not meaning in the death. I mean, there's no good meaning I can find in the death of my son. You know, how do you find good meaning in the death of Ron being killed? There's not good meaning in the death, but you can find meaning in what you do after the death. That's why Kim's work has been so important. That's what I'm trying to do. That idea of like, it's horrific what happened, or it's horrible that your loved one died or you miss them so much, but now what? You know, we have to have our period of going through the whys and ask our questions and being a detective, but then we have to move to the how. How are we gonna move forward? You know, one of the big questions I ask, and it's not gonna surprise you at all, Diane, is people ask me after all my work, do I believe in life after death? You know, and I go, of course, I mean, everything I've seen, I truly deeply believe there's life after death for our loved ones. But another question is, is there life after death for us? Do we get to keep living? Do we get to continue on in life in a way that honors them? Well, and you say in the book that that's our choice, right? That's a a decision that we need to make after a tragic loss or event, you know, also, you know, including a divorce or, or, you know, other ending 
that we have to make that decision to live and be fully present in that life. And that can take time, right? But, but absolutely, it's a this that is we not a make. quick fix. And the interesting right. thing is, I did find it as a decision that we have to make along the way. Whether it's this horrific betrayal happened with my husband or wife, what now? They're going on in their life, but what about my life? Or when someone dies, and it's interesting, you know, even after my own son died, I was talking to uh, Diane Gray, who's a, a wonderful end-of-life grief expert herself, and she had had a child died, and I remember her saying to me on the phone, you are sinking, you are drowning, and she said, at a certain point, you will hit bottom, and when you are on the bottom, you will have to decide, do you stay there, or do you push up and rise? And right. I found that to be so true with so many people that there is a moment we have to decide what are we going to do with what has now happened to us. And do you think when you make that decision that you'll be able to experience some of the, I don't want to say magic, I guess, but like the signs or, and you had mentioned life after death and, and you share a great story in the book about your son's t-shirt. And I was hoping maybe you could share that a that story as well, because I think maybe when you get to that, that decision that you want to live again, that you'll be able to see the, those signs and kind of those magical things that are out there to give us that, that reinforcement that there is something else and that the relationship will continue and that the, the love that we have for them always goes on. Well, it, it's so interesting how things happen. My, my son had a favorite t-shirt, a favorite shirt he wore. And that shirt happens to be the shirt he was wearing on the day he died. So after he died, there was the shirt going through his room, going through his apartment and found that shirt. And his girlfriend came by and she said, the only thing I'd like is the shirt. And I was like, oh, not the shirt. And <laughs> I didn't say that, but I felt that. But I thought it was the right thing to do to give her the shirt. So I gave her the shirt. And then a year later, when we gathered on the first anniversary of his death, she brought the shirt and she said, I don't think I'm supposed to have this. And she put it on his grave. And I quickly picked it up and I put it away. <laughs> I'm like, I'm taking it before anyone else can. And I took the shirt and I put it away in the closet and it just meant so much to me, that shirt. And I thought, well, it means so much, and you put it away. And so I put it away. And it's fascinating. All of a sudden, in my lectures, people started showing up wearing the shirt. And yeah, literally, <laughs> in every lecture, someone was wearing the shirt. And I realized, I told someone early on, by the way, you're wearing the shirt. And I realized that's not a good thing to do. So I don't tell people when they're wearing the shirt, but I'm amazed. And even with this new book, I did my first retreat about this new book, about finding meaning for, you know, close to a hundred people in Los Angeles. And 
I was so nervous because someone from OWN was going to be there from, you know, the Oprah Winfrey network. And I was so nervous they were going to be there. And I get there and the person from OWN is wearing the shirt. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm, I'm just being told that this is okay. He's present. He's around. He's, you know, this is finding meaning. I love that. And I, I think that those, those kinds of things are available to us if we just open our eyes and, and look. And someone could say and be a skeptic, you know, well. I am a skeptic. Believe me, I'm still yeah. like, I'm wondering. I'm really wondering. Right. You know? Like, am, am I just you, noticing it now? Times you know? I literally will do something and I'll go, I wonder what David will think of this. And two minutes later, someone shows up right in front of me with the shirt. And I'm going, it's a coincidence, I think. But I was just saying, I wonder what he would think if he'd be okay with this. So I, 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 you know, I am that skeptic who it's going to be in my face, I think, till I get it. But I'm, I'm grateful for any kind of sign from our loved ones. Oh, I think I love that. I loved when I read that in the book. I'm like, oh, that that's so amazing. And we're... We're able to get that kind of information, I think. But when you're when you're wrapped in grief and and kind of in it, in the middle of it, you're not going to see those kinds of things. Like that, that must take a little bit of time, you know, to get those meaningful kind of signs. Absolutely. And the the other thing that made me want to sort of talk about this stage of meaning, and and I'm really grateful that the Kubler Ross family and the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation gave me permission to, you know, add a stage to her iconic stages, is that in those stages, Elizabeth was a very organic, messy, rule-breaking woman. This idea that, like, people go, oh, you're just trying to, she's trying to neaten things up with that stages or give us five easy steps, are like the last thing Elizabeth would have wanted. But people started thinking about this finality, like, oh, when we had acceptance, it's over. The grief is done. And I wanted people to know, no, acceptance is not the finality. There's more, whether it's meaning, whether that's a sign from your loved one, whether that's a charity or a foundation. But I also want people to know this doesn't mean we all have to start foundations you can have little meaningful moments that mean the world to you that honor your loved one and connect you to them. Right. And it doesn't have to be a big gesture or something like that. It could be, it could be something smaller, but still just as meaningful. Right. And I told the story in the book of a woman who she goes to the post office just to buy stamps. And she's like, I need 40 forever stamps. And they take out these books and suddenly she's having to decide whether she wants flowers or flags. And she thinks, this is ridiculous. I just need a stamp. And then all of a sudden, she sees a Danny Thomas stamp that reminds her of her father. So those uh, things can come up at any time. Wait, wait, hold one second. We're going to come right back. We're just taking a short break here. Hang on. Okay, we just have three minutes. This is Unity Online Radio. Then we'll go back. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. 
Thanks for joining me after the break here. You can give us a call if you'd like to share a story or you have a question for David Kessler. We're talking about his new book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. And the book is doing really well. It's a great read. So again, I'll throw out the number if you want to get in touch, 816-251-3555. And just before the break, we were talking about, you know, finding uh, meaning and receiving signs, you know, which can be so healing for people after they've gone through um, a great loss or dealing with grief. And you were sharing a story um, uh, that you share in the book. And and I love the stories in the book about uh, a woman that had found uh, meaning in stamps of all things. (laughs) Yeah. She, she just had a stamp, you know, she saw these stamps at the post office that had Danny Thomas on them and her dad loved Danny Thomas. And I loved how, you know, when we think about finding meaning, we're like, oh, do I have to create a charity? No, absolutely not. She took the stamps. She bought them. She didn't frame them or do anything special with them. She just used them as stamps. And now, like, just on a random day when she's paying her bills or something, all of a sudden she reaches for a stamp and just has a sweet memory of her father. So there's little meaningful moments that we can find meaning in loss. You know, it's there for us to just be open to it. Well, I love that in the interview that you had with with Kim Goldman, you mentioned mediums and how people might find meaning working through mediums. And I know that you're friends with several. (laughs) We know a couple of them, (laughs) mutual friends with people that do this kind of work. And there's been, you know, good and bad in in that. I mean, I'm sure there's irreputable, disreputable, you know, people in, in that world that might take advantage of people in grief. But I mean, I know that I've seen some amazing demonstrations of people receiving a message that will help them heal. And it was interesting to hear you talk to, to Kim about that. And she says that she's seen a, a couple of, of mediums and some people that were able to give her some information. And, and what do you, what do you think about that in, in your experience? Well, I always joke and maybe secretly wish that someday I write a book called The Griever's Guide to Mediums, because obviously over the decades I've seen and talked to so many people who have gone to mediums. And, you know, just like every other profession, there's talented ones, there's mediocre ones, there's ones out of integrity. It's just like any other profession. And I always say, Go to someone reputable um, that you've heard from friends is good. You know, it should never, you don't want a medium that's going to create dependency, that's going to keep wanting you to come back every month. It shouldn't cost you your life savings. It should be very reasonable. You know, every year I do Grieving to Believing, which is a weekend with uh, Maureen Hancock, uh, who's a wonderful medium. We do that one. And You know, try to find those people that your friends have recommended because I never want to see anyone getting taken. And, you know, there are some bad mediums out there and some ones that are out of integrity. And sometimes they get the most press. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm like I said, I am a skeptic about all this, but it runs in my blood. And it's 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 funny. Even my son who died, David, was uh, the mic runner one time for grieving to believing that we were doing. Uh, And he would keep going and he was running the mic for Maureen Hancock, the medium. And he would come back and he would go a medium, like she talks to dead people. And then he'd run the mic to someone and he'd run back to me and go, 
how does she know that? And I go, <laughs> well, maybe she's a medium. I don't know. But it's, <laughs> right. it's you know. Well, I'm fascinated uh, with with that, as as you know, and you know, I've I've asked a lot of the people the that we know, and and I've spoken to Maureen Hancock, and I, I think people like her are doing some some really amazing work, and yeah, I mean, if, if if that can bring you some some peace, and they share something with you that's really meaningful, I mean, I think that can be very healing. Absolutely. And, and, you know, people always ask me, should people go to mediums? And I'm like, it is never my place to judge what someone in grief should or shouldn't do. You know, however you find your meaning is what's right for you. And also talking about finding meaning, I thought this was interesting. So, you know, Howard Stern wrote a book uh, recently. So he was out on his press tour and, and he was talking about how growing up, with a mother who was very depressed and she was devastated by the loss of her sister. They were very close. And so she suffered from depression for all these years. And part of him growing up and, and, you know, living with his mother who was dealing with this grief, the way that he coped with that was that he tried very hard to be funny and he wanted to cheer her up. And he was interviewing Stephen Colbert, who has also suffered a devastating loss. He lost his father and two brothers in a plane crash. And he said that his his way of coping was also to try to cheer up his mother and that they had that in common. And I just thought that was interesting, that coping mechanism in, you know, in, in handling grief or finding meaning, I guess, for him to get close to his mother and have, you know, try and make, have something meaningful come out of those experiences, they turn to humor. So I thought that was interesting. Have you ever seen that in working? With Absolutely. People? And in some ways, I feel like I'm a bit of a product of that, that You know, sometimes I think for them, it was unconscious, just like it was unconscious for me. You know, I, I wasn't in third grade and said, oh, my mother died. I think I'm going to be a grief expert. Uh, You know, it's just one of those things that sometimes given what happens in our life, it can either paralyze us unconsciously, we unconsciously, we can make meaning Consciously, we can do, you know, something that's meaningful. I think so many times when we're young kids, many times when I talk to counselors or nurses or doctors, they're doing what they're doing because they made meaning out of some tragedy in their childhood. So I actually think here's the thing that people don't realize. What we're really talking about here is not post-traumatic stress. We're talking about post-traumatic growth. And post-traumatic growth happens more than we know, and much more than post-traumatic stress. That's interesting, post-traumatic growth. I don't think I've ever heard that that term. Maybe you coined that. This is the time. I, I, <laughs> I would like phrase. to take credit for it, but it's, it's been there before me. But this idea that oh, okay. we can find growth, we can find growth after tragedy, you know, post-traumatic stress doesn't have to turn into post-traumatic stress disorder. It can become post-traumatic growth. And it's doing a lot of the work. And one of the things I did, because anyone who's been in grief knows that grief is exhausting and challenging. And so with the new book, I put together a free companion course for anyone who buys the book. And it's seven modules that really walks people through how they can find some meaning after their loved one has died. So that's at sixstage.com 
for anyone that gets the book, just know that that course is available for free. Wow. No, that's so great. You're offering that to, to help people and they can just use that as a free resource. And can they get to that through your grief.com site as well? Yep. They can go through grief.com and they'll see if you get the book, you'll be able to get the course. And it's a, a wonderful book. And on grief.com, there's also lots of online trainings and support things that, you know, and I always never, no one's ever turned away for lack of funds. So I always make sure people have some resources. That's so great. I hope people take advantage of that. And you've talked to a lot of people about the way that they've found meaning uh, in in grief and in loss. And, and in the book, you describe a great conversation with uh, Vice President Joe Biden about how he's dealt with grief and, and just looking at what he's been through in his life, you know, with um, the loss that he suffered earlier in his life. Um, I think it was he he lost his wife in a car accident and then his son dying of brain cancer. It's like, wow, you know, finding meaning in those, those two things. And he, he spoke to you about it. Yeah. It was interesting to just get a call out of the blue from the vice president. And he was the vice president at the time when he called and was, you know, dealing with his own loss. But here's the interesting that I think that I found it obviously in the book, there's so many stories about people just in everyday life, but I also wanted people to know when I included the stories about Joe Biden or Barbara Bush or Michelle Obama, that anyone who's done great things in their life has usually gone through terrible losses. And, you know, we think about, especially with social media now, you know, it's all about the peaks. It's all about climbing the hills, being on the mountaintop. But anyone who's reached a mountaintop in life is there because they've also gone through some dark valleys. And that helps us grow. That helps us learn. That helps us appreciate the next mountaintop when we get to it because we went through the valley also. Right. I mean, that's part of the human experience, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what makes the peak so sweet is to survive the valleys? It's it's such an interesting thing that I mentioned when we were talking that I'm doing 30 cities on this new book and then going to the UK and Australia. And one of the things that happens is we usually have um, uh, the retreats or either the one day workshops in hotels where there's a big meeting rooms. And after everyone's left, you know, we were in one room, the accountants were in the next room. The, uh, you know, the healthcare professionals learning Spanish were down the hall. And what happens is after everyone leaves the meeting, people will say to me, the cleaning crew will come in and goes, what, what was your group in here? And I'll go, why do you ask? And they go, well, because they were laughing the most. And I'll go, <laughs> it was grief. And they'll go, what kind of grief? And they can't understand it, but there's something about People who have been through tragedy and loss also deepen their bandwidth. They can appreciate life more. Their laugh is heartier. You know, they have a a wider bandwidth for the good and the bad. Right. And trying to avoid that is really pointless, right? I mean, I, I was watching one of these dumb reality shows I don't even want to admit it. It would probably be embarrassing, (laughs) but you know, it was one of those relationship shows and the guy's like, 
I I can't go through this, you know, I can't go through this pain anymore. You know, I have to be sure this is going to be the right one. And like, how can you try to plan life to make sure that you're not going to feel any pain? I mean, wouldn't that be great if you could do that? Oh, I'm not going to feel pain. Well, and that's what this life is. It's a package deal of the good and the bad. If you want to skip the bad, if you want to skip grief, it's optional this lifetime. But you can't have love. You can't have pets. You can't have spouses and partners. You can't connect with your siblings or your parents or friends. So it is a package deal that we all go through. And I think it's, it is important to recognize that. And it's interesting. You mentioned the right one. I was just talking to someone who was in terrible grief over a relationship. And just for people who may be listening and dealing with relationship loss, I said to her, part of what you're grieving is you're grieving this person and this relationship ending. But you're also grieving the loss of the idea that you mistakenly thought they're the one. And your mind's telling you the only one for you got away. And in life, there's a lot of ones. There's not one right person for you. Right. That whole soulmate idea. I mean, I, I kind of gave, gave up that idea. <laughs> I don't think there is just one. I think there's there not one soulmate one. for you this lifetime. And the, the one right person who's your soulmate, if there is that concept, isn't the one who left you. Right. <laughs> they would be there, right? They would, right. Your soulmate is the person by your side. You know, it's not the person who left and doesn't get you and is with someone else. A friend of ours, Nancy Levin, who you worked with, her and I also do retreats every year for breakups, divorce, and betrayal on the East and West Coast because that's such a hard grief to deal with. It really is. I mean, that can just knock you for a loop, you know. But I love the way that you're changing the dialogue about about these kinds of things and, and the way that, you know, that we talk about it. And one thing I always remember that you mentioned, it was on one of your radio shows about how we talk about death and how we honor people. And you were describing, um, you know, remember Charles Schultz, the Peanuts creator, and how he was sick at the time and how people were handling it like, oh, we're we're hoping you get better. You know, it was a terminal illness and probably- Right, and they're you know, right. Like it wasn't going to happen. He's in the ICU with a few hours to live right? and they're like, get better, get well. And yeah, you don't know how to say happen. great life. Thank you for bringing the laughter to us. Thank you for Peanuts. We don't know how to thank people, complete relationships. You know, we, we know how to end relationships and end marriages. And we even know how to end life, but we don't know how to complete them well. And, you know, part of my work and my it's really my hope for this new book is that it helps people not bring their broken self to the next relationship or their broken self to the rest of their life but to find their whole self and to bring their whole self to the rest of their life, their next relationships. Right. And it's, it is possible. I mean, it's possible to do that. You know, I mean, some people get stuck for a while and and you share a couple of stories um, in the book, but when you realize that, you know, you can be happy again and you don't have to feel guilty for laughing or, you know, having a good time or something like that. And, and people tend right. to get stuck sometimes in, in those situations and even feel, feel guilt. And you even shared a story that you, you felt your own guilt of, of laughing 
And you're like, how, how can I be laughing, you know, when, when my son just died? And, and it's valuable to share that. And it was interesting, you know, how I went through that. Of course, at first, I allowed myself to laugh, but only if it was a story about his life or something funny about him. That was the only laughter that subconsciously I permitted myself. And then I remember the day came, it was probably a couple of months, and I realized, oh my gosh, I laughed and it wasn't about him. And I really had to think, is that okay? And I know my son. I mean, my son, the last thing he would want would be his death to take away my laugh. And we have this underlying belief that somehow being miserable for the rest of our lives would honor them and would be the loyal thing to do. But it's the exact opposite. I want to live a life that honors my son. I want to live a life that honors the relationships that I've had. And me becoming small and shutting down and not living again, that's not loyalty. That's actually disloyalty. Right. Not, and not honoring the, the memory of that person. Right. Of course. I'm sure he'd, he'd be horrified to, to know that you weren't continuing or doing your work or, you know, helping people and, you know, all the things that, that make, make you, you, you know, and if you totally changed and just were miserable the rest of your life, that um, that person would, they'd be horrified, I'm sure. And the other thing that goes along with that, and I may have mentioned this, is that, you know, people always want to know, is there life after death for our loved ones? And I always say, of course, I believe there is. But is there life after death for us? Do we get to live? If someday, and I hope somehow, I'm reunited with my parents, with my son, I don't want that day for them to go, oh my gosh, you had another 40 years or 60 years without us. How was that? Wasn't earth amazing? What about the sky? What about the grass? What about the food? What'd you do for those 40 years? Oh, I shut down after you died. No one would want to hear that. But it's so important we know meaning is not taking away the pain. Meaning is in addition to the pain. I will grieve fully, but I also want to live fully. Right. And being able to get to that point. And that's what your book does. It really does help people reframe things and, and think about it in another way and maybe change some of those thoughts, you know, cause I really think, you know, and they, they say too, like your brain, you know, will kind of get in these ruts, you know, if you're constantly thinking, thinking and ruminating over certain things. And I think sometimes you, you need a little jolt to get shaken out of that and, I love the exercise you describe in the book about thinking of the purple elephant, you know, and I, I did that when I was sitting here reading and I'm like, okay, oh, he made me think of a purple elephant, you know, but just how our thoughts will get. In right. That, and people will say to groove, me, I you know? can't change my thinking and I'm just haunted by these images and I can't, and I can't. And I'll go, can you think of a purple elephant? And I'll go, yeah, <laughs> why? And I'll go, I just changed your thinking. Right. You don't, it works. <laughs> you, you, you know that if you remember the moment you saw them dead or the worst moment of your relationship, you have to remember it's not the only moment of their life. You had a hundred thousand other moments with them. That's one moment that they died. It's not their whole experience. And to give those other moments their due. Right. 
I mean, when, when I think about, like, I was with my mother at the moment that, that she passed. And a lot of times, right, when you're fresh out of that experience, of course, you're going to remember, you know, them in pain or, you know, she wasn't in the hospital, she was at home. But, you know, that, I mean, that part obviously isn't pleasant. But what I like to remember now is, you know, the days before where we were sitting in bed doing crossword puzzles and, and talking and, you know, and sharing time. And, and I know that, there was nothing really left unsaid, you know, up until that point. So I guess being able to shift out of, you know, the, the horrible images and thinking about the, the memories, the really meaningful memories. Well, that's why I wanted to put a lot of brain science in this book. So people would know they're not negative thinkers. They're not bad. Our mind has been trained this way. You know, science is showing us that, our mind is like Velcro for the bad memories and Teflon for the good ones. The good ones don't stick. The bad ones we just get stuck with. And I want to help people see that that's a protective mechanism, but they don't have to be powerless. And they can have different memories of their loved one and they can find meaning. Right. And there's so many great, uh, you know, ways to, to change your thinking that you share in the book. And I, I just really, I really love the book. I really enjoyed reading it. And I think people are going to really benefit from this. And, and you also talk about, about funerals and memorials and, you know, using that to honor our loved ones and give us a place to express our grief. And sometimes people are like, Oh, I don't want to go to the funeral. And I don't, you, you remember Debbie Ford, right? I remember of course, going, of course. going to her memorial and it was one of the, you know, best experiences. I mean, just seeing people sing and dance and, you know, celebrate her life was just amazing. And, and Louise, Hay, you know, at her memorial, you know, people being able to talk and share their stories of, of being with her. And I just, I thought it was beautiful. I, I think people do a, do themselves really a disservice by not, not marking that, I guess. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's so interesting that so many people I talk to who have such a tough time dealing with grief, I'll go, what was the funeral like? Oh, we didn't have one. It wasn't convenient. Oh, well, what was, did you have some bookend ritual? Oh, we, we didn't have time. People were scattered all over. The weather was bad. And that ritual, no matter what it is, even if it's friends going out to dinner in honor of someone, we need bookends in our life. We need rituals. You know, you talk about Louise one of the most sacred moments in my life is literally the first cremation I ever witnessed was Louise's. And to be with her physical body for those last moments, that was such a ritual to me that I got to, you know, know Louise for 30 years and be with her in those last moments in her physical body before it shifted. Right, right. And to be able to, you know, honor that and everything she did and then, you know, send her off with, with those thoughts and, and feelings of love, that's got to, got to be incredible. And you'll be happy to know that some of her ashes are at Unity Village. I took them there and put them in the Rose Garden. <laughs> oh, wonderful. I, wonderful. There, hope, there's the I little Louise all that. around the world in a million different ways, including her ashes now. Yes. Yes. And, you know, at the memorial, they gave everybody, you know, a little bit of her ashes. Right. And the next time I went to Unity, because I knew she loved roses 
and I put them in the Myrtle Fillmore Rose Garden and kind of had a little little ritual for her. And I said, I hope I hope you like the roses. And yeah, so I mean, I love ritual. <laughs> I'm a big ritual person. I love satyrs. I love rituals. I love and food and ritual together. That's the best. But yeah, oh, there you it's go. <laughs> it's important to mark uh, to mark those things. And think but, about that idea of meaning. Just, you know, when you go to Thanksgiving or whatever, bring your loved one's favorite dish. You know, little moments like that can be meaningful in finding meaning. You know, you wish grandmother was at this Thanksgiving. Well, make her favorite dish. Bring her favorite Thanksgiving dish. Right. Yeah, as the holidays approach, I mean, that's tough for a lot of people in, in dealing with loss. But that's a great way to to honor them and to find meaning and to add a new tradition maybe to what you already did, you know, during the holidays, add something else. So we just have a minute or two left. It's been so great to talk with you and I'm so happy this book is doing well. And you mentioned that that free course that is absolutely the books on sale, obviously at Barnes and Nobles, your local independent bookstore, as well as of course on Amazon. And no matter where you buy the book, When you get it, just go to sixstage.com, and you can also find links on that page, sixstage.com, S-I-X-T-H, stage, S-T-A-G-E.com, and there you'll be able to get the free course. You can also go to grief.com and see the free course there, and uh, I think it's going to help so many people, and I want to be with them to help them find their meaning in life after loss. And people can find out where you're going to be appearing because you said you're doing the the David Kessler 30 cities, right? So they can find that at <laughs> grief.com. Just go under the events button. I have some great retreats on the East and West Coast. I'm going to be at Infinity in Chicago, lots of different places that I hope they'll check it out and see me there. Look for him. He's out on the road. And David, thank you so much for talking with me today and, and sharing your book. Finding Meaning, available now. I love being with you, Diane. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, Don't take your dreams lying down.